Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello. Hi, everybody. Happy Halloween. Have you just had a dinner of, like, sweet tarts, rope, and hundred grand bars? Because that's what you got with me. <laughs> So forgive me if I'm a little jittery. Anyway, I hope your doorbell stopped ringing because it is time to get into the true crime thing. I uh, feel like I saw a few of them at my door tonight, but okay. So let's start with this. The biggest I told you so moment, maybe, in true crime history. The King Roadhouse in Idaho. They wanted to tear it down. University got it and they wanted to tear it down. The prosecutors and the defense attorneys, they all agreed, okay, let's, let's tear it down. But you know who didn't want to tear it down? The parents of the victims, they didn't want to tear it down because they said, what if there's some evidentiary value down the road? Like, what if you forget something? What if you need to see something you missed? What if the jury wants to go inside? And as it turns out, after all the hand wringing, almost a year since the murders, they were there today. The FBI and prosecutors were at the King Road house today, ripping off the plywood covers from the doors and the windows. They're going in and doing big measurements for something big and special. I'm going to tell you all about that during the program today. Also going to talk about the I told you so part of this. How is it? How is it they got it so wrong? We're not even a trial yet. So, is that house now going to stay up till trial? So many questions. Also, kind of a weird decision. DNA decision made in court. The judges made this decision, and a lot of people are saying it is a win for Brian Koberger. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it isn't. But some people think it is. What the prosecution is going to have to do for the defense now, with regard to their file of DNA... Um, I'm going to explain all that in a moment. And then you can decide whether you think it's a gift to Brian Koberger's defense team. Then, um, okay, if I said this, an Arizona mom in Gilbert uh, gets kind of out there with her, you know, doomsday beliefs and then, like, gathers up her kids and her brother and they off scram to Idaho and they're talking about end of days and they, you know, maybe commit some crimes and end up, like, getting arrested, you'd say that's Lori Vallow because... Obviously, and it isn't. It's somebody else with long blonde hair. And I am going to tell you the story of Spring Thibodeau and what police say that this woman, I cannot believe I'm saying it, from Gilbert, Arizona, just like Lori, gathering up those kids and the brother and heading up to Idaho with the doomsday survival gear. Wait till you hear how much money uh, she spent on survival gear and what the husband had to say about it all. Remember Charles Vallow saying this is crazy. Well, this is just an unbelievable carbon copy. Um, one difference. One of the kids was 16 years old, football player. Not the kind of kid that would want to leave his football team in the middle of the season. So lots going on there. I'm going to explain that to you in a moment. Then, have you ever been in traffic 
And I don't just mean, uh, you know, on 95 or 75. I mean in traffic where it's hot, you're frustrated, you're mad, you've had a long day, you need to go somewhere. And there's like construction or there's just bad drivers or just people and then you just like lose your mind. Because if you know what that feels like, <laughs> it's not like this. Meet Sydney Meekham. Yeah, that's Sydney Meekham, and a parade route was just ahead. So what do you suppose happened to that parade route with that guy at the wheel? Uh, let me just tell you, it is the most weird story of road rage because there are three cameras that recorded all of this, and they all belong to Sydney Meekham. His own car recorded his entire incident. Let's start with Idaho. Okay, it is a good thing. It is a good thing that in all the different iterations of the debate over tearing down the King Road House uh, just off the campus of the University of Idaho, it is a good thing they did not ultimately tear it down because there was something they still needed inside that house. And for that reason, the FBI and the prosecutors returned to this house today. This is what we've been looking at for months. Lonely, sad, season after season. It's almost been a year. We're just two weeks away from the one-year anniversary of these horrible murders of the four kids asleep in their beds. Today, they returned, and they started prying off all that plywood. Prying off the plywood from the doors, prying it off from the windows, and then they went inside. Remember, to the biohazard, it's a reason why we need to... They went inside. So authorities saw some evidentiary value in the house that is still standing multiple times after it was supposed to have come down. Remember last year, we were told it's going to come down at the end of the semester. That's like spring. It didn't. It's going to come down at some point during the summer when, you know, the students aren't here. It didn't. There's multiple times when that house was supposed to have come down. And but for the ardent activities of the families, not the defense, not the prosecution, not the judge, not the university, the families of those four kids, not all of the families, but many of them, they said no. They, they said, leave the house standing. How do you know that something won't pop up in the investigation where you really need a different perspective? You need something else from that house. What if the jury just wants to go and walk through it? It's an incredible fact pattern that played out in that house. What if the jury wants to know, would you be able to hear it from this room or from that room? Both for the prosecution and the defense, right? Huge issue. So here's what they needed to do. Apparently, they were gathering documentation. They were talking about the need for construction visual and audio exhibits and building a physical model of the King Road house. So I guess they're in there with tape measures doing something more accurate than they did before. Really shocking, though. The FBI is going to be there today and tomorrow. So November 1st is tomorrow. They're going to be there for tomorrow as well. I want you to hear what the um, parents of uh, Zana Kernodal and uh, Kayla Gonzalez said in a statement. As the family has stressed from the beginning of this investigation, the King Road House is one of the most critical pieces of evidence in this case. We are grateful that the University of Idaho listened to the family's concerns and delayed the demolition of the home. Isn't this the whole point of not destroying evidence? You may not know if you need it until later, or it may become more important once a jury hears evidence in a case. It is our understanding that the King Road residents 
will not be demolished until after the trial has concluded. That's important. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So maybe they know something we don't know, that this decision is now permanent till the end of trial. On another note, it is important for families of victims to stay involved in this process and trust your gut when it comes to standing up for the victims in the case. Our voice has been loud and consistent and will stay that way for Kaylee, Zana, and all the victims until justice has been served. I want to bring in Brian Enton, News Nation's senior national correspondent, and Gigi McKelvey, who is the host of the Pretty Lies and Alibis podcast. Welcome to you both. Brian, we were just so incredibly close multiple times uh, to that house coming down. I thought it was a misprint when I read what I read this morning. Yeah, I mean, listen, you said it, Ashley. The family trusted their guts. They have been fighting and fighting and fighting for this house not to be torn down. And all the experts on the case there in Idaho were telling them they were crazy. The prosecution signed off on the demolition. The defense signed off on the demolition. The University of Idaho has sure been in a hurry to tear that house down. Well, guess what? The house didn't get taken down right away, and there they were, back there today. You had the new video. We had exclusive video. Uh, It wasn't just a couple of FBI agents, Ashley, going in and out. It was an entire team. For whatever reason, they decided they needed to remap out the house to build this model that they planned to build. They, uh, They had all sorts of specialized equipment out there today, 3D imaging machines. They had a drone up over the house. None of this would have been possible if the original plans had gone through. And you said it. It wasn't just one plan. It was over and over again that the university and the prosecution wanted to tear the house down. And thank goodness that the family, the Gonzalez family particularly, uh, kept fighting because obviously police found value in going back in the house today. So, Gigi, jump in on what Brian just said. Um, Obviously, they saw value in going back in. I don't understand how 12 months later um, they can just now be seeing the value of going back in to take these measurements. The the house has not changed. Everything is exactly the same. And there was meticulous investigation that went on for months. Yeah, they did some measurements in that initial investigation, but the difference is that everything was still in the house. So what the FBI did, thank goodness they didn't tear it down. You can't put toothpaste back in a tube. Once it's down, it's down. But the house is empty at this point, and now you have this trial delayed indefinitely. These models take months to put together to get all the data analyzed. So the FBI thought it's a good time with the trial being delayed to go in there and do our FARO scanning and get their own measurements separate from the initial investigation with the house being empty. So, Brian, when I was reading the statement from uh, Steve Gonzalez and Zana Kernodal's family, they released a joint statement together. Um, and I will tell you this, that um, I texted back and forth with Ethan Chapin's mom and said, do you have any thoughts about this? And she said, no, um, I don't. And she's been very much like that since the beginning. This is extraordinarily painful for everyone involved, and everybody reacts differently. But that was the reaction from Stacey Chapin, that she did not have the same reaction that these other family members did. Um, Brian, when Steve said, um, and I, you know, Steve has taken the lead, but this is Steve and also um, the Kernodal family, it is our understanding that the King Road residence will not be demolished until after the trial has concluded. Do they have information that we don't have? Is this now a uh, fait accompli? It is staying up and it could take years to get that trial, uh, you know, to, to, to finish up. 
Well, it seems like what they have been told, Ashley, is different from what the university is putting out publicly today, because when they made the announcement today that the FBI and police were going to be going back into the house, uh, they said in black and white, the university still intends to demolish the house, not this semester, though. Um, so, I mean, look, it's no surprise. They've said all along they want to demolish the house. They want this house down. I mean, I don't know if it's a PR thing. I get that it's very, very sad to have right there next to the campus, but they're not giving up on that. They're still not saying officially uh, to us that they're going to keep the house standing through the trial. Uh, perhaps uh, Steve has, has some different uh, information. Yeah, that, that stood out to me. Um, Gigi, I, listen, um, the, the university, we don't know their motives, right? Like, let's be honest, there are a lot of students at the University of Idaho that are probably affected in some kind of PTSD from what happened there, and they're reminded of it on a regular basis. It is an eyesore. It is a, it is a horrifying memory. It is a, it is a traumatizing thing. It is a trigger for a lot of people. So I get it. If the University of Idaho wants that gone and wants a beautiful park to remain, I could list uh, off the top of my head dozens of crime scenes where that has happened. Beautiful parks and memorials have been erected in the place where horrors have transpired. So I don't besmirch the university unless it's just for PR, which I don't know. It may, may not be. But what is the rest of the community there saying, Gigi, like students and, and residents of Moscow? Like, how are they weighing in on this? Yeah, kind of what you just said. It's it's very traumatizing to see that house because there are students that live in very close proximity with an eye shot of that house. They see it multiple times a day and then they know what happened there. So the general consensus is everybody's ready for it to come down. But I think everybody also could understand that it, it comes down when the time's right. And maybe that is after trial, as we see here. They're doing work. We want a conviction that sticks. If a jury finds him guilty, let's get everything we can before we tear the house down and then, you know, make plans to make it something nice of remembrance. But right now, it's still a crime scene. It's still evidence. And we're seeing that today and tomorrow with the FBI in there. Yeah, I mean, listen, justice for those four innocent kids should be paramount to all of our feelings. I mean, I really do believe that the families and their memory really deserve the best shot at litigation and prosecution and defense that can be offered in this case. And when it comes to that, I mean it. The defense deserves to have that place and the prosecutors deserve to have that place. Mm. I was astounded when they agreed to... Um, you know, to demolish it together. Hey, uh, Gigi and Brian, thank you both. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ash. Thanks, Ash. Right. So there was a little bit of other news as well when it came to uh, this case today. And I want to tell you about that. Um, it's a little bit convoluted, so I'm going to try and make it as simple as possible. The judge did what some people think um, was give a gift to the defense because the judge has said, Regarding all that DNA technique that the prosecution's been using, I get it. I get it, defense attorneys. I get it, Brian Koberger. You want to peek in their file, and you think you deserve the discovery. Normally, that's not so unusual, but you don't get everything in an investigation. In a, in a discovery, you don't get everything. You don't get every single police officer's notations in every book that they might have done an interview, right? You don't get everything. And the prosecutors are saying, that's right. Our DNA technique that we used, genealogy, you know, the good old uh, 23andMe stuff, uh, we didn't use it for any 
court stuff. We didn't use it for warrants. We didn't use it for anything where you deserve to see that work product. What we did was we figured out who his family was, and then we went and did good gumshoe policing. We collected their trash, and then we did the old swab of his cheek. And the swab of Brian's cheek, the police say, matches that knife sheath at at, at 1122 King Road. So what the prosecutors are saying is that you don't get to see every piece of work product. You don't get to see everything. Um, And quite frankly, we don't think we need to share the genealogy with you because it was just sort of, it was like the lie detector test. It just led us to more information that we could investigate. Defense saying, nope, we want it all. And the judge is now saying, yeah, you know what, I'm going to take a look at that. I think I'm going to go into chambers without all the cameras and everybody listening. And we're going to take a peek and see what they can and what they can't see. So to figure that out and how that works, Dave Ehrenberg is with me. He's the state attorney for Palm Beach County. Dave, it's so cool to see how confusing. um, I just call it, you know, DNA. But it is cool to see how this familial DNA has woven its way into American jurisprudence and become complicated. Do you see this as complicated or do you just see this as placating the defense um, and moving on? Actually, it's been going on for a while, but law enforcement hasn't wanted the public to glimpse behind the curtain because, number one, they don't want the public, when they sign on to these genealogical websites, 23andMe, for example, to, to not click the box allowing your information to become public because law enforcement has been using this stuff to catch serial killers, cold cases, and if the word gets out that your information, your DNA could be viewed by law enforcement, maybe people don't check that box and then you can't crack these cases. One of the reasons why the prosecutors did not want the defense lawyers to see all this stuff is because they don't want the cousin, the third cousin or whoever the relative is of Brian Coburg to be harassed. And they don't want that person to be some red herring at trial. Aha, uh-huh, this is the real killer. He's got the DNA. And besides, what privacy interest, Ashley, does Brian Koberger have in the DNA of his second or third cousin? None. So is this one of those things? There's a fancy um, expression in the law. I always love it. It's called fruit of the poisonous tree, meaning if you do something that isn't quite right and it leads to really good information in the case that could nail you to the cross, you all of a sudden can't use that because it was born from that poisonous tree. Is this one of those circumstances where the familial genealogy that led them to Pennsylvania, that led them to Brian Koberger's dad's house, that led them to believe we got a family member and someone in this family member must have a white Elantra and, you know, fit the bill and there was Brian Koberger. Is it is it possible at all that all of this could be thrown out because of the poisonous tree i don't think it's poisonous but is it actually that's what the defense is hoping that is like their only chance here i think because once they had the dna swab of Koberger's chic it was a match and how did they get to that swab well you laid it out correctly they had to first get the dna from the sheath of the knife then they ran it through the databases and there was no criminal in their database on file that matched so what they did was they took it to the genealogical database, and they found a relative, and they compared the relatives who owned a white Hyundai Elantra, and that's how they found Koberger, and that's how they got the swab of his cheek. So if you could suppress the initial genealogical DNA, the thinking is everything else 
goes away as well. It's fruit of the poisonous tree. I think it's very unlikely this will work, but it's all they got. So I just want to remind everybody that this is exactly what we're talking about. It's the K-Bar knife. This is not the knife, obviously. I don't have the piece of evidence here in the studio. But this is the piece of evidence that we're talking about, and it's this little snap right here. Right there, that snap. The DNA that they discovered was in this little snap. Maybe you can see it better against my white shirt. This little snap right here. Uh, the DNA was somewhere in this little snap. And so that was a minuscule um, sample, and they did the genealogical tree. And then they found the Koberger family and went to Pennsylvania and got the garbage and had a hit, and then got Koberger and swabbed his cheek. So it's super interesting. You know, Dave Ehrenberg, let's meet back up when they finally decide uh, what's going to happen with this. Because I'm like, it's, you know, we're, we're flying the plane uh, as we're fixing it kind of thing with this, this genealogy. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Ashley, and happy Halloween. Hey, happy Halloween to you, too, and all the nerds that you've probably gone through tonight. Um, I'm just like, I'm seriously on a sugar rush. <laughs> all right, Dave, see you in a bit. Coming Thank up. You. If I told you a mom in Arizona was so worked up over the second coming of Jesus that she took her brother and her kids to Idaho, broke the law, and is now facing the full hand of justice, you would say Lori Vallow. And I would say Spring Thibodeau. Tonight, yet another cult mom accused of doing something she shouldn't have involving her kids. This time, a 15-year-old football star, that kid way over on the left, and his older sister, the one Mm, almost at the right. Second from the left. Um, what is in the water in Gilbert, Arizona, for heaven's sake? Then, later on, take a look at this. They got it all blocked up. The Lloyd Center exit, the convention center exit, every motherfucking exit. You Well, okay then. Case of road rage for the record books. Just wait until you see what this fella did to the parade route straight ahead. That's next. What is going on? What is going on in Gilbert, Arizona? I mean, it's a bit nutty. And I say that uh, not to be flip. I say that because I'm a bit astounded at the fact pattern um, that I have just read about a, a woman from Gilbert, Arizona, who decided to collect up her son and then her daughter and her brother and make for Idaho for end of days, even though dad didn't want that to happen. Uh, this sounded exactly like Lori Vallow. Like, that's what Lori Vallow did, right? Lori Vallow collected up her two kids and her crazy brother, and they went off to Idaho because they figured, you know, Chad Daybell was there and there was some kind of apocalypse coming and they were the chosen ones. Ultimately, she killed those kids and she is serving life, life in prison for it. And thank God that didn't happen with a woman named Spring Thibodeau. But she's from the same place, Gilbert, Arizona. And she did the same thing. She got real deep into this cult-like crazy stuff out of the Mormon church, like really divergent from the Mormon church, and then, you know, started buying survivalist gear to the tune of thousands, and then did that business with the, you know, 16-year-old son. Can't do that. Not when he's got a dad. Turns out uh, they were on the run, and they were found. And they were found at the Alaska border. So they'd gone to Idaho and made hay 
for the uh, Alaska border. So I, I wanted to figure out what this was all about. And I talked to Rick Allen Ross today. Um, he is like the definitive person on this. He's a cult expert. He's the founder and executive director of the Cult Education Institute. And I asked him, like, is, th- is this like going to happen a lot down there? Here's our conversation from earlier. Rick, it seems odd um, that there are two stories coming out of Gilbert, Arizona, that are so incredibly similar. I want to say what's in the water, but it's more serious than that. Yeah, I, I mean, the Lori Vallow story and the and the Spring Thibodeau story are very similar. Uh, the difference would be that the leader in this situation that we're following now appears to be her brother, uh, Brooke Hale. But in the other story, of course, it was Chad Daybell, uh, her husband, her boyfriend. What's odd, though, is that there's this whole family dynamic for Lori Vallow. She also had a brother and other family members that left Arizona for Idaho. And in the Thibodeaux, same thing. There was spring with her brother taking her kids. It, it just almost it seems so carbon copy. Is this just coincidence or is there something bigger afoot? Well, I think, uh, Ashley, can, uh, what we're looking at is a family cult, in my opinion. So there are cults that are built around a charismatic leader, and there are very small groups that are built within a family. And we saw that with Lori Vallow. Uh, she brought in her, her brother. Uh, she brought in her sister and people that were related, uh, that were married. And so that became the group. And what we see in this in this group with Spring Thibodeau is the same thing. Her brother, Brooke Hale, is the leader and his idea of the end times. And so he is the defining element and driving force of the group. And he enlisted his sister, his niece, his nephew. And this is very similar to what happened with Lori Vallow. It also rang so like freakishly similar when Ben Thibodeau said, I watched as my wife got deeper and deeper into these, you know, readings. They were all members of the Mormon church. So was Lori. Um, But somehow they began to follow different teachings and went down a rabbit hole. And it almost sounded like a carbon copy that spring did the same thing, started doing these readings and these healings and Ben his her what uh, his uh, uh, her her husband felt like he was losing control, which is what Charles Vallow said too. Yeah, I mean it's exactly the same story. Ironically, both in Gilbert, Arizona, and both involving the state of Idaho and the end of the world. And uh, Spring Spring Thibodeau also was very consumed with reading end times books about the end of the world, and then she sees herself as a prophet in much the same way that Lori Vallow saw herself as playing a pivotal role in the end times. So her her brother, Brooke, uh, he sees himself as receiving revelation through dreams. And again, this is the same exact story that we had with Chad Daybell. Uh, but what's disturbing is when it involves minor children. And, and when a parent is in a situation like this, and I often am brought in as a cult expert for emergency hearings, much like the one that took place, uh, this is very frightening because they were preparing to go into the wilderness. Uh, They had been prepping, uh, stockpiling food, uh, gathering camping gear. What do you do when you're a parent 
and your estranged spouse is going to take your child into the wilderness where you will have no contact, no communication. I mean, I keep coming back to it being Gilbert. I mean, this is the same place. It was the genesis of Lori's issues as well. Is it just that it's these two stories or is there something going on in Gilbert where there is a lot more of this um, under the surface, just waiting to sort of erupt like it did for these two women? Well, I think across our country, there's kind of a bubbling and an uneasiness about world events. Many people are saying that are religious people, that doomsday is upon us, that we're in the end times. They look to what's going on in Israel uh, the unrest in our own country, and they see this as somehow fulfilling some prophetic vision. Mm -hmm. And so when you have someone who is given to be very religious and devout and devout in their beliefs, uh, they, they may be susceptible to someone coming along, especially a family member, someone who they trust, who they, who they care about, telling them that I have received visions and this is the end. And so what we're seeing is, you know, this kind of uh, personality-driven group experience, very similar to what happened with Chad Daybell. I could talk to you forever, especially given, you know, the circumstances we are in globally and how the Middle East now is, you know, <laughs> on everyone's minds. Um, Rick Allen Ross, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ashley. And so you should know that um, Spring Thibodeau and Uncle Brooke Hale uh, face charges now of custodial interference and conspiracy to commit custodial interference. And thank God they don't have murder charges like Lori Vallow. OK, so coming up next, a story with so many layers of absurdity and like disbelief. It's hard to actually keep track of the crimes. A social worker in Ohio already arrested for having sex with a child she was counseling. And can I just say a 13-year-old child? And that's not the child. That's the social worker. Uh, now has made her extraordinarily serious criminal case 10 times worse. Don't ask how this happened, but suddenly a gun became involved in a terrified family. And you're going to get all the details in just a moment. And then later, uh, take a peek at this fella and his bad day. case of road rage like no other all caught on the driver's own dash cams you will not believe uh where that road led him to next here's a hint a parade and yes it was a long parade route and he decided to take almost all of it take you for the ride in a moment It is never good when you get into trouble at work, especially like only three months into the job. OK, so Peyton Shires uh, got in trouble at work three months into the job and then got in even more trouble just a couple weeks later. And when I say got in trouble, it's not the kind of trouble where your boss calls you in. It's the kind of trouble where the cops take you out. Here's what happened in June. Peyton, she's only 24, but a very young mother. Uh, in June, Peyton got her social work license. Congratulations. And then, like, within three months, police say she is having sex with the person she's counseling. As, and the person's 13 years old, a boy. Three months after the license, okay? Yeah, that would 
pretty much be the end of a really big story, but there's more. Okay, by September, um, they they arrest her for this, and then by October, just a couple weeks later, they arrest her again because she bonded out. They say she showed up at the kid's house with a handgun, and is seen on the ring cam threatening to kill the mom and herself for quote ruining my life for reporting the sex with the kid. And the reporting is kind of important because the mom found the 13-year-old boy or boy's uh, cell phone and found a bunch of text messages that were like, "What? whoa, hold it. That's 24-year-old social worker, your 13-year-old boy. And one of the text messages was like, did you delete the videos of us? Like, did your mom see them? From Peyton, that's what the police say. So that's not, that's really not good. Uh, she is now facing two additional charges in addition to the sex with the boy, and that is uh, two felony charges of witness intimidation. Yikes. I want to bring in Dante Mills. He is a criminal defense attorney. That's my question for you, Dante. As we look at video of her crying to the judge saying, I didn't want to kill her, uh, my question is, yikes. Like, how do you defend this? Um, She is just in a boatload of trouble. Uh, Yikes is right. I have on my Halloween colors. This is a scary story. Um, this is someone who was, yeah. supposed to, who was supposed to protect this kid uh, and ended up uh, having uh, sexually assaulting this kid. So first, let's just break down the charges and what they mean. She's charged with uh, unlawful sexual contact or conduct with a minor. There's different degrees to this, and this is important. She's more than 10 years older than him. She's only 24, but he's 13. So that makes this the highest level offense that there could be because if you're less than four years older than the person, there's there's some uh, you know forgiveness there. But because she's more than 10 years older than him and he's only 13, uh, this is the highest level. So she clearly violated him. And then she went back, like you said, and tried to uh, tell the mom that she was going to kill the mom and herself because they've ruined her life. And now she's facing two additional charges uh, for witness intimidation. And ironically enough, those penalties are almost more severe than the penalties for the underlying sexual misconduct charges. And that kind of gives you That's what I thought was weird. Yeah, like up to five years, I think, per for the intimidation, but only like 18 months or so for the other stuff that I thought was far worse. Having sex multiple times, by the way, this wasn't just a little bit of heavy petting. This was multiple times having sex in multiple locations around the city. I do want to mention, she was a social worker and... She was his mental illness counselor, which makes this even more distressing. At the same time, I question her mental fitness um, because she is so wrought uh, with whatever emotion she's going through. She made this terrible decision to go to the house after she got out on bond and wave a gun around on the camera. Will that play into this, her mental stability? I don't know if it'll play into her competency, but will it play in at all in terms of leniency? This is very interesting because you would assume for someone to perform this behavior, there has to be something mentally wrong with them, right? There has to be some illness there. But in order for her to show that up, uh, she's going to need the people around her to say she has a history of mental illness. You can't just say, I had a mental lapse and committed this crime only, right? You have to show a history. She's going to need her fiance to come in and say, yes, uh, I've seen weird things happening in the last couple of years, or she's been off here. She's going to need the support of the people that she betrayed the most 
to come in and support her and say, yes, she's had some mental illness prior to committing this crime. So you can't commit a crime, get so nervous about it that you start doing weird things and then say, oh, I have a mental illness. You have to show that you had issues before you actually committed the crime. And she's going to need the people that she hurt to come in and verify that. If she can get them. Uh, Dante Mills, great to have you. You got to come back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy Halloween. Thanks for coming. Okay. Hey, right back at you, too. All right, coming up, uh, look out ahead if you know what's good for you. Take a peek. Road rage caught on camera by the Ragers' own cameras. Countless people, small kids, an entire parade route in the path of a man hell-bent on getting somewhere. I don't know where. We're going to take you on that ride and list out all the charges. So pour yourself a really long drink because it's a lot of charges. And uh, newsflash, not the first charges that fella's ever had. That's next. I don't know why Sidney Meekham decided to put three cameras on his car. Did he think somebody might hit him or be awful on the road and he'd need evidence of it? Because that's not what happened. Nope. The guy that you're about to see is facing 38 charges. I'll tell you what they are in a minute. Um, for doing, like, the craziest thing I think I've ever seen on the road. And I really can't tell you a lot about it other than it was June 10th uh, in Portland, Oregon. And it was the day where the Grand Floral Parade really chalked up all the roadways. It, it, it's a long, long tradition, right, that parade. And Sidney Meekham wasn't happy about traffic. So here's what it looked like when he got on the road. It's a little after 9 a.m. on a picture-perfect day for Portland's Grand Floral Parade. It's a tradition dating back well over a century. City streets are blocked off, and traffic, as you could probably understand, is slow. But Sidney Meekham is feeling neither festive nor patient. I'm blocked off! The Lloyd Center exit, the Convention Center exit, every motherfucking exit! You Meekum starts screaming wildly into his phone about exits being blocked off before suddenly he decides to turn on some pleasant folk music. I don't know, maybe to calm him down. But it doesn't work. Meekum instead drives straight over some traffic cones and crashes through a roadblock at an upcoming exit and then goes up onto an embankment to get around some construction vehicles that are blocking his way. He turns right at the upcoming light, ignoring all of those people who are frantically waving at him as he appears to barrel straight into the parade route. He swerves to avoid some families and small children in the street, taking out the folding chairs as parade goers run for their lives. Police try to chase him down. They chase him on foot, but he just speeds down through the thoroughfare. Finally, that officer there on a motorcycle, able to catch up with him to the back of Meekum's truck. But the cop is still unable to get this driver to stop as he veers right and then continues right down the parade route. Then the motorcycle cop finally does get ahead of the truck, but still no luck stopping Meekum. The cop tries again 
And this time, Meekum turns his car off the parade route, sending more chairs flying. He can't seem to shake the cop that is still behind him, though. Caught now at a red light, a police vehicle tries to block Meekum from the front. But Meekum just plows right through anyway, driving through yet another barricade and then another and hitting his vape as he appears to just drive off from all of the chaos that he's left behind. My favorite part of that was the music. <laughs> I just cannot understand how he likes such calm music. Um, he was caught, and he is facing, you ready, 38 charges, including multiple counts of unlawful use of a weapon, reckless driving, reckless endangerment, disorderly conduct, attempt to elude. He also was driving without insurance, of course, and a suspended license, the police say. So he's facing all of this. He's pled not guilty. But as it turns out, we did some digging. And guess what? Sidney Meekham, has, uh, he's no stranger to the law. Uh, he is a registered sex offender with these prior convictions. Ready? Buckle up. Attempted first-degree rape, first-degree sodomy, third-degree sodomy, third-degree sexual abuse. He's been locked up in the Inverness jail um, since the incident in the spring. And that is Sidney Meekham. Got a Halloween question for you. What is your scariest movie of all time, in your own opinion? Because if you ask 100 people, you're going to get 100 different answers, right? But some real researchers with real white coats and clipboards, sciencey guys, they made a list of the scariest movies ever, according to Cold Hard Science. There's such a thing. So what makes or what film uh, makes us jump the most? And why do they say that's actually good for you? It is good for you to watch this stuff. I get the science and the answers next. Okay, it's Halloween night, and we're done, right, with the show. So I am now ordering you to turn off the lights and watch a scary movie before you go to sleep, because apparently it's good for you. Uh, we took an informal poll here at the office today, what people say is their scariest movie ever. My personal most feared movie is The Exorcist, but I also heard answers like The Shining and Blair Witch Project, Somebody actually said scream. <laughs> but some actual researchers did an actual study of which horror movies are scientifically the scariest. And uh, they made a list of which films make your heart pound hardest. So tell me if you agree. I thought it was weird. Uh, the number two scariest movie ever, according to these laboratory nerds, is the movie Host. It's a low-budget film set mostly in the online Zoom meeting world. That's scary, uh, but we can relate. And then the number one scientifically scariest movie of all time is a movie called Sinister, starring Ethan Hawke. Test audiences saw their average heart rates shoot up 34% during that movie and then really shoot up during the film's big climax. I will not tell you. I will not spoil it. You can look up the study online, though. You can see the whole list. Screencraft.org. Uh, the Exorcist, by the way, my one that has like changed my dreams, that's all the way down at number 32 of all-time scariest movies. And I'm like, whatever. Hey, um, 